Welcome everyone live from the Academy of Mary Immaculate in Melbourne, Australia. You're listening to Be Like Her live on Academy Live. My name is Estelle and my co-hosts today are Grace, Emma and Georgia. Our special guest today is Alvira Kalanyuk. Hi, Alvira, welcome to the show. Thank you. So we know that you're a past student here at the Academy. So how does it feel coming back? What a great question. Thank you so much. First of all, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I am very excited to be back. I have very fond memories of the Academy. And when I was um, a student here, we actually had two campuses and oh, wow. the junior school campus was across um, the gardens. So that was sort of closer to Melbourne University and uh, I was the junior school captain. Oh, So I was uh, – I have very fond memories. I loved being involved in the leadership um, and walking across to the senior campus. That was sort of a big deal. And I – do come back from time to time for the reunions. Yeah. So I love to see how the school has developed and grown. Um, yeah, I have just really lovely fond memories. I've got really good friends that oh, yeah. I made from school. I'm almost 50 and we've just maintained that friendship, oh, three good. of three really close friends from the academy. So, yeah, I wonder, it's very exciting to be back. How has being a Mercy student impacted your life? What a great question. <laughs> Uh, that's a bit of a curveball. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> well, I'll tell you something that's interesting about my childhood. When I was uh, a little girl, when I was six, we moved to a house in Coburg that was right next to a convent. So from a very early age, I was always fascinated with the nuns. Wow. And to me, it wasn't a lifestyle I would choose, but I really admired that somebody would dedicate or devote their life to that. Yeah, yeah. Um, kind of role and I found that really inspiring. Yeah. And what I love about um, – and I had a lot to do with the nuns from a very early age. So I went to a Catholic primary school and I did piano lessons at the convent, you know, next door. And when I was in year 12, um, because I was part of a quite a big family, there were six of us, it was noisy at my home but the convent was so quiet. You know, oh, the, wow. the space of the <laughs> convent is very reverent. And they had quite elderly nuns that lived there and it was a mutually beneficial arrangement that we had where I would do my studies there because it was quiet. But really it was under the guise of just keeping an eye on the elderly nuns Mm. and they would – it was great. They used to just bring me tea and biscuits Uh, (laughs) and I got a lot of work done there. So I just have always enjoyed um, that, you know – being part of that community and when I um, left the academy I went and studied at Melbourne University and then when I uh, I started traveling and I went to India and I met Mother Teresa oh, wow. and that was like a really special occasion yeah, yeah. because she gave us a private audience my friend and I were traveling together and and she was very ill at that time and wasn't seeing people but she was well enough to, to see us um, and so for me, I've always um, really respected um, the the institution of religion and being part of the Mercy tradition. My children go to Loyola now, so they're in the Ignatian tradition. I studied um, religion in year 12 as a VCE subject, which I think there was only one of – I was one of five who did that. I loved oh, wow. it. I got straight A pluses. It was, <laughs> it was a great um, – I just really uh, appreciate 
the mercy tradition and what I love the most and what I've taken from it is the idea of um, having a life of service. So I know it's a really long answer but no, no, it's okay. um, to me uh, that's that's one thing that I do really admire about what the nuns were doing because th- that is a life of service. Mm-hmm. And so whilst myself I wouldn't choose that for me, I do definitely choose that, you know, that message of yeah. life of service. And so that's how my life has really hopefully panned out. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. said before you travelled to India to see Mother mm-hmm. Teresa. Did you often travel a lot or, or was it just like just – just to India or did you travel all around the world That's a really great question. I'm a huge advocate of travel. I've done extensive travel. Um, When I was a – so my – I'm from a family of immigrants. So my dad was first born – he was born in Italy and he migrated to Australia. But before he did that, he met my mother in um, America. Oh, wow. So they had my sister in America. My mum was Australian. My dad was um, Australian-Italian because she also was the daughter of immigrants. but So they met in Italy, uh, sorry, in America. They got married there. And my sister was born there. And then my mum was pregnant with me. And then we, she, but she returned to Australia. Oh, they did return to Australia. And I was born in Myrtleford. And so every time I go back to America, I've been to America many, many times, I feel like I'm home. So I've yeah. really, there's some sort of sense of place there. So yes, I've, Travelled to America many times. I worked in Taiwan. I when wow. I left to Melbourne University, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I studied archaeology and politics, and I thought I was going to be an archaeologist, but I just oh, wow. did not want to do that on this year. But archaeology was great. You know, went on excavations and um, you know would um, find really interesting things and would you'd learn how to draw them and measure them and all that sort of thing. So great skills and. I just wasn't sure, which yeah. is, you know, very – I did a Bachelor of Arts, so that's what, what you often do when you're not sure what you want to do. And and so I moved to Taiwan and I worked there and I started teaching English and I loved it. Yeah. So I returned to Melbourne to do a teaching degree. Um, and teaching has also – because it's a very dynamic job. I was a primary school teacher for more than 20 years. Um, I did a lot of travel in that role as well. So I was invited to go to um, Japan. And I did a, a stint in Japan. I worked with some Japanese teachers and did a homestay and, you know, saw the schooling system there. And then in 2016 I was awarded a fellowship. So I moved to Canada and did oh, wow. some teaching there for a year and it was just an incredible experience. So, yeah, I'm, I'm planning a trip in September. I'm going to the UK with my family and in October I'm returning to Italy. I'm going on a... I'm doing a program with Monash University where um, other doctoral students come together and we work on world problems. So that's at the Monash campus in Tuscany in Prato. Yeah, so I um, – You've I, been everywhere. Yeah, I do love travel. <laughs> I don't know that I've been <laughs> everywhere. I do have lots of places I still want to go. Yeah. But I do um, think that you can get a lot of learning, you know, understanding different cultures and, yeah, yeah. I, I do really value it. As well as doing a Bachelor of Arts and a Diploma of Education, you've also done a Master's in Arts Therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, what's in Arts Therapy and what do you use it for exactly? That's a great question. <laughs> so um, Creative Arts Therapy is a type of – it's therapeutic work. Yeah. So um, – and it, when I was studying art therapy, it wasn't well known. 
it was a little bit hippie, like a bit woo-woo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but it's really come into the mainstream because people are starting to see the importance and value of um, that type of work. So basically instead of having talking therapies and when people are quite feeling uh, a lot of perhaps trauma, sometimes you don't have the words or you don't really know what's going on or if you're feeling depressed or if you're feeling anxious, you sometimes don't, you can't put words around that experience and so what art therapy is is it's a way to externalize something um, that's internal it could be something that you just it's just a feeling or a thought or you're not even sure and you use art to express that and what happens is that the art um, um, materializes uh, externalizes something that's internal and now you have a tangible physical form that you can talk to so instead of talking, you know, if I was in a therapeutic situation with a psychologist, they might say to me, you know, um, how are you feeling? And then you sort of have to paint words around that. And you're like, oh, I'm not really sure. But if you have an art form in front of you, you're not talking directly to that person. You're talking about the artwork and it kind of makes it feel a little bit more safe. Yeah. And the art itself will tell you or give you clues as to what's happening happening internally. So you might say, well, um, you know, oh, I can see that um, you've used these colours or you've used these tones and you talk about the art and you're not talking per se about the person but you get a lot of clues and insights into what's happening with that person. So it's a different way of communication. It's yeah. not and it's taking the pressure off trying to work out Try, making sure that you know you don't always have the answers so what I've used it for is um and the reason why I got into it was because when I was a classroom teacher I really saw how children um did very well academically but a lot of children were really suffering and I wasn't really confident to know how to support their well-being and when I was an art teacher so I was a classroom teacher. Then when I was in the art room, I really noticed a shift in the, the way the children responded. They were so engaged when they were um, in the art room. They loved coming. They didn't feel it threat. They felt it non-threatening. They enjoyed it. And that's when I decided I'm going to use, I'm going to go and study art therapy. Yeah. So um, I studied it just to really help me in the classroom. And it's been really useful tool. I've got a lot of um ways to support um, children individually when they um, are feeling like they can't cope in the classroom or something's happened, maybe a parent has died or maybe a parent has become really unwell. I've used it, um, I was invited to do some art therapy with a group of kinder children oh, because wow. their kinder teacher just died suddenly. Oh, wow. And so those children needed really intensive support. But with young children, they don't often know what's happening. They may not have the words. So using art therapy was a way to support them in the, in a way that was more, um, you know, through play, through art, through drawing, through dance to really externalise some of those um, challenges that they were experiencing. So uh, and I, and when I was in Canada, I worked in a school that had a high First Nation yeah. Um, population, so First Nation Canadians. So the school I worked in was what they call trauma-sensitive practice and so I used a lot of art therapy techniques or therapeutic techniques. So I wasn't doing art therapy per se. I was using those techniques in the classroom to really um, support the children to have 
um, a good experience at school and feel yeah. safe and welcome. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Be Like Her live on Academy Live, live from the Academy of Mary Immaculate in Melbourne, Australia. My name's Estelle and my co-hosts are Grace, Emma and Georgia. And our special guest today is Elvira Kalanyuk. How do you feel your work helps the community? Thank you so much for that question. Um, I, at the moment, I'm a researcher, so I'm almost finished my PhD and my work is in a field that is not very well understood. So I'm hoping that my work will help the community through that space. So I study, um, I research something called dysgraphia, which is a writing yeah. disability, a specific learning disability. I think many people have heard of dyslexia, um, which is a disability in um, reading. And it impacts people who have quite good intellect. So they're quite intelligent. They generally cope with the classroom demands. They um, look like they're doing really well across the general curriculum. But when it comes to writing, they have difficulties, whether that's poor handwriting or maybe they have trouble um, with um, composition or they might have really good ideas but not able to translate that to paper or when they put it on paper it's disorganised so they have, you know, paragraph one, paragraph two and paragraph three don't really match. You sort of have to switch them around. So my research is um, about the lived experiences of what is it like to have dysgraphia and so I have interviewed children um, aged 10 to 12 who were diagnosed with dysgraphia and I did art-based research with them to access how they thought yeah. about that. So there's my art therapy <laughs> coming yeah. into the research. Um, so and what I do is um, I do publications. So I've written eight publications. Um, five are out and available so that that's a local and international audience so that people understand the Australian experiences of dysgraphia. So from the children's perspective, their parents and their teachers. And um, I also have presented for Spelled over the last few years. So Spelled is like the peak body. So when people don't, they want information on dysgraphia, they can go to Spelled and learn about that. So I'm hoping that that's a contribution to the community. Yeah. How well do mainstream schools cater for students with physical challenges? Oh, that's a great question. Well, I think schools are getting better at it um, and there's so many different physical challenges um, and in my work it's uh, not – they're not catering very well for children with dysgraphia. That's what the research is saying. Uh, but, again, getting better at it and the difficulty is that if schools um, don't recognise dysgraphia or they don't know how to diagnose dysgraphia, um, then often the children – go through schooling with uh, a perception around them. Um, oh, the school bell. It's all good. Don't worry. <laughs> oh, how it's wonderful. All good. It. <laughs> oh, it just brings me right back <laughs> to my schooling days. Um, so when um, they're not, children are not recognised with dysgraphia, then often they're just seen as, because they are quite intelligent and they can keep up with the curriculum, they're often seen as just lazy. And so they are then misperceived in that way and that can really have a detrimental impact on their mental health. So that's the danger about schools not being equipped with that um, information. But I do think it's getting better. I don't know much about other um, physical disabilities. Um, I think schools have mandates 
So generally they're pretty good because they, yeah. they have to comply with certain um, regulations. But I haven't been in a – I mean, I did some CRT last year but I haven't yeah. worked in schools for five years so I don't know how it is now. But definitely in my day that was something that we addressed, yes. Do you think schools back when you were here at school and now have changed or do they still are pretty similar? Uh, I think there's been a lot of progress and I think particularly in the neurodiverse space, I think young people are much more aware and so – the young uh, teachers who are coming through, um, uh, you know, are much more conscious of it. I think we're recognising the way in which the school system um, had been quite ableist, you know, and um, was really set up for people who could cope and who could navigate um, the space. And now we're recognising actually um, some things just are not working for some children and there's been a lot of adaptations to to really bring on board um the, uh, to make sure that everybody feels welcomed and able to participate in education. And, yeah, that's come through a lot of international laws, com- conventions, which has translated into the school system. And I do think Victoria uh, does have quite a good school system, but there is also always work to do. So, yes. Yeah. What experiences or people have inspired you on the path you are on in your life? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, well... I've had so many, um, so many sources of inspiration, and um, I would say that my grandparents, um, who had really started with nothing, and my great grandparents were the first immigrants in Australia from my family, and it, I was the first one in my family to go to university. So it took four generations for that to happen. So I think without their hard work and then that being passed on to my parents and my parents were, um, they just had to, because there were six kids, they just had to work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what happens when you have to work is that also the roles get divvied up more equitably. So I was really fortuitous um, to recognise early that, men and women could do um, like all sorts of roles that there wasn't that like gender norms. So I've taken inspiration from my family. I've taken inspiration from my teachers. I had a fabulous education and great primary school teachers, great high school teachers, amazing teachers in year 12 who really put me on the path to, you know, a good um, next few years. And um, I also am quite inspired by my friends um, and travel, obviously. Yeah. What challenges have you experienced working in your industry? So many challenges. (laughs) (laughs) So if I think about primary teaching as being like my main profession, um, I would say that when I was a primary teacher, it was really heavily female-dominated and... That creates a lot of bias, I think. Um, And when I was uh, a teacher in my later years, I was in – because usually you work as a primary school teacher and you've got your own class. But I worked in a double classroom with a male colleague. And what he taught me was a better understanding of education for boys and the way in which I had biased some of my work towards the girls. And, for example, I always thought that girls were better writers. 
But when I was in this grade one, two classroom, I realized, hang on a second, boys are great writers. Mm-hmm. And so, and he was an artist and a teacher. And um, I think he taught me the value of play. I mean, we did some wild you know, things with that grade, there were 50 children and we were making like Rube Goldberg machines and it was just a really exciting way to, to teach and we still did like explicit teaching and we taught literacy and numeracy in, in, you know, really concrete ways but it was fun. Kids wanted to come to school and it was just a really, I think, um, so for me recognising the bias was a real challenge and I think um, bringing – being open to different possibilities has really helped me to overcome those challenges. We all know through history about um, men and women and their differences in how women should behave and the certain limitations women have had between the two. Have you had any particular challenges being a woman in any of the fields that you've done? Um, yes. I think um, some of those are unconscious biases that you I mean I've always been very sensitive to um, the discrimination because when I was a young girl I grew up in this Italian family we used to have Sunday lunch at my grandparents house and I always found it remarkable that the end of at the end of the meal the women would get up go to the kitchen and clean and the men would sit around and play cards and I found that so like maddening you know that was just incredibly frustrating for me um, and my grade two teachers, I remember this one lesson where they said they had a chart of jobs that women and men, you know, it was set up so that it would be like male and female jobs. So, for example, mowing the lawns, doing the dishes, vacuuming. And the teacher said which jobs could, um, which jobs could uh, a woman do? And I was so confused by that question. I thought, well, women can do any of those jobs. Yeah. Why would she ask that question? And it really struck me that so many children in the class were like, well, women can't do um, the mowing of the lawns or women can't drive a car or whatever it was. And so I've been very sensitive to that. So I think along the way, even if there was a uh, perception that a woman couldn't do that, it's never it's never been a barrier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just kind of pushed through and thought, uh, you know, that this is something uh, women can do. And so I've never felt the, I might have felt, felt the sensitivity but I've never it's never stopped me. Yeah, so we look back at like a few centuries ago to where mm-hmm. we are now as a society. We have seen some improvements, pretty big improvements between the two men and women. Do you still think that there are some like improvements for women for equality? Well, that's a really great question and I'll tell you another story because you've reminded me about the Matildas being a great yeah. example in this moment, when I was in year uh, 16, I used to play women's cricket. Wow, okay. And in those days it was just so frowned upon. You know, you didn't play women's cricket unless you were a lesbian or back in the day the derogatory term, you know, that you're a dyke. And it was so frustrating to me because I I just was so resentful of that commentary. Now that's only 20 years ago or maybe it's a bit longer than that, maybe 30 years ago. (laughs) But uh, maybe 40 years ago, no, about 30 years ago. But um, so to me, and I think this is what a lot of women are feeling in this moment, is I never thought I would see that in my lifetime. I just didn't think we would come that far this quickly. I thought that's women in sport is just not going to be, you know, something that's going to hit the radar. 
And to see that progress today is just completely heartwarming and that's why it's captured the imagination of so many people in this country because a lot of us um, know what it's like to be a woman in today's society and a lot of us know the, the prejudice and the discrimination. And so then to see this uh, example of how women can really be at the forefront of something that was such a male-dominated space really goes towards um, – you know, that credit to the women, the forerunners who really came before us because I've lived in a time of great, you know, it's I've been on the cusp of change my whole life, you know, like technology. I know a time before that, before mobile phones, um, you know, I know that life. And so the rapid advancement, um, you know, a real credit to the forebearers. So, yes, I think we are definitely somewhere new and exciting but we absolutely 100% have more um, more to go, more work to be done. Yes, yep. we can't take that for granted by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. What are some areas that you would like to see women like excel in more, like more than they did now? Like is there anything that you would change now to make it better for women in the future? Oh, I, I think leadership. I would like to see a female prime minister um, in – here uh, voted in at, in Australia I really would like to see that I would like to see women in more leadership positions I would like to see women in uh, those math stem subjects engineering um yeah women just make an, a remarkable contribution they bring a whole new uh, lens a whole uh, set of skills and uh, deep empathy and um you know, it, the problem I think for women too is that when they're in roles like my job in, in teaching, that those professions are care professions and it comes at a great emotional tax. There's a, there's a tax you pay in those roles. So, yes, I would like to see um, women in more industries but I also want to see women um, protect themselves in, in, in jobs that are traditionally like the caring jobs because women do invest themselves uh, typically I mean obviously there are women who know how to you know create healthy boundaries but um, yes I, I would like to see uh, women definitely in leadership positions yeah yeah what else are you looking forward to doing in the future in your work oh so many things <laughs> I don't know what the future holds for me um, I do want to continue um, supporting students um children in uh, you know this area of dysgraphia i'm studying um i would like to do a bit more travel yeah, uh, yeah. but i have got <laughs> quite a few trips coming up this year so yeah that's happening um and i think i would like to just um maybe support children with autism i have two children who are on the spectrum um one of my daughter has adhd um, my son has dysgraphia. That's how I got into that um, yeah. space. So I think I would like to do some more work with young people around um, autism spectrum disorder and um, supporting um, children in that space. So I don't know what the future yeah. holds. I'm going to finish my uh, thesis this due soon um, and then I don't know what I'll yeah. do next but I think I'm just, just going to follow, um, you know, um, just see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Any messages for any young Mercy women or people who want to do something in your field? Um, I think 
that teaching is a wonderful career. So if women are thinking of doing teaching, that I would recommend that. Um, and I just think follow your path, like like those mercy women who um, chose to be, to have that life of being a nun. You know, that was a calling. It's not for me, but it they followed their dream and I followed my dream. And I do think that there's something really important about um, listening to what it is you like, what you're interested in and following that path. And if you do that, you will typically be successful. Mm. Yes. Yeah. That's all we have time for today. Thank you so much, Ellie. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. Live from Academy of Mary Immaculate in Melbourne, Australia, you've been listening to Be Like Her Live on Academy Live. My name is Estelle and my co-hosts today were Emma, Georgia and Grace. Thank you for joining us, Ellie. We hope you found the information useful. Till next time, have a great day. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks.